Welcome to the Hindsight Podcast, a production by the Army Foundry Platform located at Fort Liberty, North Carolina. Our goal is to support the continuing education of our students through deep dives into subjects relevant to the complex and dynamic operating environments they find themselves in. Where appropriate, we address revisionist narratives and serve as a resource for intel, defense, and security practitioners and scholars. I am your host, Vu Tran, and on this episode, part two of the Sino-Soviet relationship, 1949 to 1991. Back to guide us through the twists and turns of this tumultuous and contradictory set of years are Dr. Peter Yeltsov and Dr. Christopher Marsh. Gentlemen, I'd like to pick up part two post the 1969 Sino-Soviet conflict. In 1971, then-President Nixon's National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, traveled secretly to China. One year after that, Nixon visits China. How did the Soviet Union view those developments from its perspective? I think they were worried, definitely. But at the same time, Brezhnev, if you think uh, Nixon also connected with Brezhnev. So he had good relations. So like I would say, it's really unfortunate to me that Nixon uh, screwed up later when we know he happened. Because he was actually, in terms of foreign policy, he was doing really amazing things. Because he reconnected both with China and the Soviet Union. So I don't think they saw at that point as a big threat, Nixon's reconnection with China, because Brezhnev was working uh, with Nixon directly, and I believe Nixon came to the Soviet Union. And uh, so I I don't think at that point they saw it as a big threat. That's really interesting because a lot of the commentaries at the time is usually portrayed as a worrying uh, development in the eyes of the Soviet Union that the United States and Communist China were starting to thaw relations. Well, I don't know, maybe some reports at that time didn't portray it positively, but I never heard or seen that it was seen as a, a major concern because the Soviet Union still thought of themselves as the great superpower. And China was not really economically at that point in any sense. It was a pretty poor country. And the Soviet Union, think about it, it was a colossus. It was like controlling the Russian troops were... Uh, uh, controlling half Europe. The Russian uh, proxy wars were pretty successful in Africa and Latin America because that was still a period of decolonization. Uh, and uh, there was, for better or worse, there was a pretty, quite a lot of sympathy, particularly before 68, after 68, the Prague Spring got worse, but still there was a sympathy for the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union never colonized faraway lands like Africa and they supported liberation movements. So Soviet Union was extremely powerful at that time, at least in their perception and the perception of the United States. And China was not really a great power. So almost in the Soviet eyes, it was a backwater of communism that yeah. they could afford to... I think so, I would say so. ...to almost lose or kind of yeah. lose some influence. In. And the relations, think about it, the relations with India were very good, particularly on the Indira Gandhi that was known how... Was a, Brezhnev's famous kiss, how he kissed all the world leaders, and he would do the same with Indira Gandhi, with an Indian woman, and she would tolerate that. But the friendship was, the connection with India uh, was really good, uh, which was really bad news for China. India was almost considered not really a capitalist country in the Soviet Union, so they're friends. And it was also the time when, uh, when did Nixon go to China? 72. Yeah, 72. That was the time, think about it, around the same time it was a Bangladesh Liberation War, which Nixon supported Pakistan, which completely lost because Bangladesh, so um, so it's a very complex situation. And India was seen by the Soviet Union at that time clearly as a much more 
uh, important power, non-aligned, than China. So even as far back as the, the late 1960s, early 70s, kind of the Soviet Union viewed it as counterbalancing any threat China could pose with the Indian relationship? Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, again, uh, the Soviet Union did not perceive China at that time as a very powerful player. I think, do you agree with that? Or Yeah, absolutely. China was, was on its knees after the, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution was entering its second phase, which was one of kind of recovery, if you will, um, up until 1976 when Mao dies. And that was a period of no growth, stagnation, um, people worried about whether or not the Cultural Revolution was truly over. It was the kind of event, my friends have told me from China, that it was the, you knew the event was over when it was over, but when it was ending, people didn't know it was ending. And they were fearful that it was going to rise back up again. So the period of, say, 72 to 76 um, was a difficult time and a time of, of just recovery from the, the grave damage that had been done to the country between 66 and 69 or 70. And think also another factor, the Soviet Union was heavily involved in a proxy war in Vietnam still, when uh, the US troops were still in Vietnam. So China wasn't really a big concern. That's another issue here. That, that's an interesting point, because yeah. uh, I thought, Vietnam would suck up more of the oxygen for the American policymakers than the Soviet ones, but was it just as huge of a of a focus for the Soviet leadership? What was going on in Vietnam? Yes, I mean they wanted, of course, uh, the the U.S. to fail there. I don't have the numbers. What was the extent of the Soviet help to Vietnam? But of course there was. They were messing with that war as well. So how did that dynamic play out? Because by then, the Sino-Soviet split was well on its way to conflict in 68. So how did both sides deal with that relationship of supporting the North Vietnamese? I can comment on this. My advisor was the uh, Yugoslav ambassador to Vietnam um, in the early 70s. And so here he was, a non-aligned movement communist country. and he would talk about how the Chinese and the Soviet ambassadors at the different meetings that they would have would never talk to each other in this time period. They would pretend the other didn't exist, but they had to sit next to each other because of their, the rank in terms of recognition of Vietnam. Um, and he got to sit in, in next to them because Yugoslavia had recognized Vietnam as well. Uh, and so these meetings in Hanoi were rather stressful and, and anxiety ridden. <laughs> but the, uh, the fact is Kissinger and Nixon were looking towards China as a way for guarantees so that they could get out of Vietnam. And this is when we call in 72, the Vietnamization of the Vietnam War which is handing off the Vietnam War to the, the U.S. proxy forces that were there um, and getting fewer and fewer 
U.S. soldiers involved and eventually drawing down by 73 the U.S. forces that were there in Vietnam. And then by 75, they had the, the fall of Saigon. Um, so, and then by 79, China invades Vietnam, uh, which is kind of turns everything on its head from supporting the Vietnamese during the U.S. war in Vietnam and then um, going into Vietnam in 79 to, to stop the, uh, the, the revolution that was ongoing. And so that's an interesting set of years because North Vietnam invades South Vietnam in 1975. Mao dies in 76 which also marks the end of the Cultural Revolution. And then the CCP goes through 77 and 78 debating reform. Absolutely. And then declares war on Vietnam in 79. <laughs> so during the uh, period of debate about economic reform, can you shed some more light uh, for us about who the key players were during that period and what um, went behind Deng Xiaoping's thinking? Well. Deng, Deng's thinking, Deng Xiaoping, w emerged because he was thinking that reform could take place by employing market measures. He's often attributed as bringing capitalism to China, but it was not using the word capitalism. It was, in, it was in using the word market mechanisms. And that market mechanisms could be introduced uh, first at the local level and then at larger regional levels. And these market mechanisms could be tested to see if they could um, spur on economic development. And they did. And once that happened, then Deng Xiaoping kind of emerged as the, the first among equals after the, uh, the, the tumultuous period of 76 to 78. And by 79, he's the unquestioned leader who is, again, going to bring China to war in Vietnam. A quick war, you know, but, but a war nevertheless. This period of 1976 to 78, when Mao dies and the CCP goes through this period of internal debate, from the Soviet perspective, what, what did they make out of it? You so know, that, that period is best known as called the, the Brezhnev uh, stagnation. There was really not much happening. In a sense, the Soviet Union, would, uh, they called it, uh, developed a mature socialism. And basically, the life you always see, a lot of drunks on the streets. Like everyone had a job, everyone had a house. So it was a kind of a safe but very stagnating period. And I don't think there was much interest still uh, to China. There was not still, the relations were still pretty low. Uh, actually, the relations improved for the first time, really started improving. When Mikhail Gorbachev went to Beijing in 1989. That's right. That's how long. Yes. Right. So there, there was not much, of course there were like relations. There were no like bad, bad, but there was nothing really fabulous. Peter, I have something to, to add to that. Um, the 
reforms in China were interpreted in the official documents of the Soviet Union at the time, like Problemi Danovovostoka for Eastern Affairs, we translate it as, as in English, um, the Journal of the uh, Institute of Far Eastern Affairs. Uh, I went through all their, their journal articles related to what was going on in China, and they called it neo-Maoist reforms. So even though Mao was dead and Deng Xiaoping, we now know, was implementing true market mechanism reforms, the Soviet analysts were the same analysts who had been there all along. They hadn't been removed or changed or developed. So they looked at it and said, oh, this is nothing more than, than you know, changing the emperor's clothes, if you will. Uh, and the, the reforms are, are neo-Maoist and they're, they're not going to get at any kind of the deeper problems that are plaguing the, the Chinese economy. And this existed all the way up until the point, like you said, Peter, um, until 1989, really, uh, including 86, 87, during perestroika and then glasnost and new economic think, new um, political thinking, the, 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 the the analysts who were in the Russia's Far Eastern Academy were still thinking that this was not going to work, that this was still neo-Maoist in some regard. They, that, that line of thinking continued for almost a decade uh, until it became absolutely apparent that the reforms were, were different. And then with Gorbachev coming to power and allowing Glasnost, some new blood came into the academy in, in Russia and was able to, to express what they saw in different light. And you saw a change of tack um, among the scholarship that was being done in that journal. Uh, in the other journals as well, and in the white papers that were coming out of um, what we call the Mosgi, the uh, the brain, the uh, the the um, Russian Academy of Sciences or the Soviet Academy of Sciences at that time. So it it took a while. They were there was definitely a long time lag between what was going on in China and the scholars of China in Russia recognizing that they were indeed genuine and far-reaching efforts and uh, reforms that were taking place. Do you think maybe the experience of the Soviet scholars of what was going on in China, if what they saw during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution maybe colored their underestimation of the reforms that were going on during Deng Xiaoping? Um, Maybe they saw it as just another set of crackpot reform efforts from the... Yes, that's exactly what was meant by neo-Maoist um, reforms, was they're, they're at it again. They're doing these crackpot reforms that are going to go nowhere. Absolutely. What about these CCP reforms were, were different? Were there key elements or how, how did they go about initiating reforms? Was it by sector or... Um, was it all at once? Two key things. The first was the introduction of market mechanisms because the, there were no market mechanisms introduced in, in the Great Leap Forward or um, other reform efforts that had been tried even after that. This was the first time where you could say 
you work and you get paid in accordance with what you earn. Um, and personal plots were allowed, and uh, this was happening in the Soviet Union at the same at the same time, where you could take the the extra production that was be being made on your personal plot and sell that on the free market. And in China, this meant that people would stop working for state-owned enterprises and try to start their own personal plots and gardens and so forth. And the Chinese government also began to stop putting so much money into the state-owned enterprises and telling them that, hey, you have to you have to be productive, you have to be revenue generating and support yourself to a certain extent. You can't just be a, uh, a suck on the Chinese economy. You have to produce something and sell something and generate hard currency. And meanwhile, the, the, at the same time, you had individuals who were starting to become wealthy and had started in 1978 to 1980 period with small plots and by the mid to late 80s becoming quite wealthy and the standard of living increasing quite a bit and the percentage of the GDP coming from the state-owned enterprises dropping significantly somewhere in the area of 25 to 35% um, by, by the time of Tiananmen in 1989. Reforms start in China in 78. Seven years later, Gorbachev comes to power in the Soviet Union, and he initiates perestroika and glasnost. Um, I know, Chris, earlier you had talked about a lag between when reforms started in the CCP before they were recognized in the Soviet Union. When Gorbachev started perestroika and glasnost in 85, was the thinking behind either of those reform efforts based on CCP activities at all, or was it just no? I, I think it had nothing to do with China. It had purely internal and international politics of the Soviet Union. We can talk forever about the factors, the reasons. It's just like Vizila and I believe in individuals. I believe that if, um, for example, there were two young candidates in the Politburo when they were elected, uh, Romanov, Romanov, and Gorbachev. So. Romanov, of course, had a bad name to be the general secretary of the <laughs> Soviet Union, but he was very conservative. They basically wanted a younger man. And uh, I think it was an internal, some factors to mention, the war in uh, Afghanistan, uh, Gorbachev's definitely personality, the three people, uh, Gorbachev, Yakovlev uh, for ideology and Shevardnadze. Uh, Yakovlev was for years stationed in Canada and graduated from Columbia University on the assignment of the KGB, but probably if you go to Columbia University, your worldview may change, even if you're a member of... So, like, I would say it's the... Uh, I mean, the causes are multiple. They have nothing to do with China. It's internal domestic politics. It's, it's economic collapse of the Soviet Union. Some researchers say that Andropov, who brought ironically, Gorbachev to Moscow from the South, he already realized, he said, people remember in several meetings, we need to find the deal with the Americans. We can't compete anymore on arms race. And I think that big Reagan's bluff with the uh, Star Wars, defense, yeah, defense. yeah, like all that bluff, it helped. And so those multiple factors led 
and then the personalities between Reagan and Gorbachev, and then his genuine desire, probably personally, his grandfather was uh, killed or imprisoned uh, during the purges. So I think he had a personal issue with uh, Stalinism. He wanted to liberate that political system. He didn't have plans to, but it had nothing to do with China. Yeah, I can carry on that conversation a little bit. When I was in graduate school in the 1990s, I was told that, in fact, it did have something to do with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union's reforms had to do with the success of China's reforms. And I found zero evidence of that in all of my research. And I would agree 100% with what Peter said. There's no evidence that um, the, the Soviet Union and the Soviet scholars of China, the ones who you would think knew the best about what was going on in China, that, that their opinion had changed. Their opinion had not changed. Um, not by 86 or 87, for sure. They still were talking about neo-Maoist reforms, that lag I was talking about. Um, so I, I completely agree with, with what uh, Peter had said. I think it was, uh, and Peter can correct me if I'm wrong, I personally think it was Gorbachev going to Tiananmen, going to Beijing in 89 in May and seeing the protests in Tiananmen Square that got him to think something's going on inside this country that is not, that does not coincide with what I've been being told by my policy advisors. And he looked for himself. And what he saw was liberalization. He saw the the um, Statue of Liberty made of paper mache and things like that. And he saw signs in Russian that said, we need a Chinese Gorbachev and perestroika and glasnost written in Russian, um, in addition to these things being written all over Tiananmen in Chinese as well. As far as the Soviet Union decision to initiate perestroika and glasnost, in 1985, was the Soviet Union under any existential threat? Did the Soviet leadership perceive there was a reason other than ideological for why perestroika and glasnost well, were necessary? First of all, it, 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 perestroika is not introduced until um, pretty much 87. 87. Yeah, 80, people forget that, and sorry to steal your yeah, thunder, yeah. Peter, but people, as you remember and yeah. recall living it, when Gorbachev came to power in March of 1985, his he was not someone to initiate reform efforts. Um, and a matter of fact, when Chernobyl happens in 86, he is still clamping down and he's still a Soviet era leader. Um, it's not until later on that year and then in 87 that perestroika and glasnost are introduced. So I wonder if Peter, if you could elaborate on that time period, what it was like under Gorbachev before he unleashed Perestroika and glasnost. So gradually, I think, well, glasnost uh, stands for openness, basically some kind of a freedom of speech. Perestroika means reconstruction, rebuilding. So I think when he came, I again would point so much to his personality and his personal bodies because exactly he came like as a Soviet leader. But I think uh, it was Margaret Thatcher who came and met him at the funeral of uh, Chernyenko. He said, and, and she said, I think 
later to Reagan or someone, she says, he's different. It will be different with him. He started, for example, some like those um, crazy thing, populist things. He would go to the factories who start talking to people. He would just go like stop his car in the middle of the street and say, I mean, how are you doing? Yes, there was no existential threat. Definitely not. Still, the army was in, uh, in Europe, a powerful army, nuclear weapons. But there was, a re I think, a re realization that something needed to be done because the country was going economically down, really down. And they thought that they can't compete anymore in terms of uh, arms race. And the Afghanistan war was not going the right way. It was very unpopular. People were talking about it. My own brother went to Afghanistan the last year of the war, 1988, 89, as a draftee. Uh, so, like, I would say there were internal uh, factors. And the most important thing, I am convinced that at the top echelon of the Communist Party, they completely lost faith in communism. Most of them just, they didn't care anymore. They didn't believe that they'll bury United States. They, they wanted to reform the system, change it to make it more humane, uh, to make it economically more prosperous. Um, they were un, are understood well that the war was not, was not going the right way because under Reagan with a proxy war uh, with CIA working via Zia ul-Haq, the Pakistani dictator helping the Afghani Mujahideen. So all of that, but he clearly didn't have a task to destroy the Soviet Union. He's changed over the years, and I think he's still even, I mean, just recently before his death, he still regrets, he says that he could save some parts of the union. Uh, so yeah, this was internal, I think, very much so in those days, internal politics. There were some very important figures in those protests, one of those being Zhao Ziyang, the PRC's premier from 1980 to 1987, and second highest ranking in the CCP system. Could you shed some light for us into that period of what could have been and what ended up being? China up to that point was potentially heading towards a Singapore-style democracy. What happened to derail that? Yes, there was liberalization going on that began going back to Deng Xiaoping. But Zhao was a reformist, reformist-minded individual um, inside the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. And I believe he died in April. And they would go, people who were pro-reform would have, I don't want to say a demonstration, but would, would gather, have a gathering um, at his funeral. And then the next year at the commemoration of that funeral. And that's what started things off in April of 89 was the yet another year of remembering him and the reforms for which he stood. And they, the, the population pushed the reform movement, both in, in Wuhan and Shanghai, as well as Beijing. And uh, Wuhan, if I remember correctly, was the one that really started to get popular and large scale early on in 1989. Um, but the government was not willing to 
to let it go and follow its own course, especially when the, the calls came out for a Chinese Gorbachev. Uh, and then Gorbachev came and visited the third week of May. And he said to Deng Xiaoping, he said, we need to be careful about the types of reforms that we implement. And this is an example of where reforms can become so dangerous that they can unleash powers that cannot be curtailed and reeled back in. Uh, and I think that's what got uh, Deng Xiaoping to, to realize that even though he was a reformer at heart, he was not going to stand by idly while the, the reforms in China um, went about a democratization, something too fast, because on Liu Si, June 4th, that's how we refer to it in Chinese for Tiananmen Square, that's the exact day that Warsaw was having its elections, and the Polish elections were taking place, and everyone was in Warsaw um, watching these elections, these, these new populist elections with Solidarność coming to power. And because of the time change from one side of the planet to the other, that was made public and the decision was made to clamp down on the, the protests in Tiananmen on that exact day. So it's a great irony that as the liberalization was culminating in democratization in Poland on the other side of the world, that liberalization was being curtailed, stopped, and brought to an, an abrupt end. You had an interesting anecdote in Unparalleled Reforms. Um, if I remember correctly, it was about the Chinese Communist Party leadership sitting together in a room watching uh, newsreels of the execution of Romania's dictator. Absolutely. Uh, Nikolai Ceausescu and his family. Um, China had very good relations with Romania. And they were able to get footage out of the, the uh, embassy and get that to, to Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping called together all the leaders of the Politburo and said, you know, sit down, we're going to watch this film. And, they, and everyone did. And then Deng Xiaoping got up and said, if we don't do something, this is going to be us. And that was a huge impetus for, for the reform effort that Deng Xiaoping was going to lead to tighten up reforms, put an end to them temporarily uh, until what we call the Southern Tour of January, February 1992. And it was because they were very much afraid of what was unfolding in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And in Eastern, in Soviet Union, it was an August 91 putsch um, when they attempted to take control from Gorbachev. And those leaders, and Peter, I wonder if you could comment on, on the, the putsch of, of August 91. Uh, I can comment on the, the Chinese side of it. The Chinese side of it is they looked at it as a major threat to regime stability for the Chinese and especially for the Soviets, but by extension for the Chinese. And that if they let reforms go too far, 
that they would follow in that path, whatever that path was going to be. But they set up a study group and that study group in China was set um, to write a white paper on the reasons for the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union. And this is before the Soviet Union collapsed. But that was, I think, the biggest, more than even the Soviet Union. I mean, the wall, as you said, Ceausescu, like all these revolutions, that started in 1989 with the fall of the wall. That's right. I think that's when uh, the Chinese really realized that exactly as you said, if they're not going to do something, that's, that's when the film was from. Them. Yeah, that's when the film was from. It was from December of '89, right? And the wall came down in November, right? And uh, so I think it was a great fear. And the Soviet, and, and you're right. I remember there were when Gorbachev went to, uh, I mean, he went to Germany, East Germany, right before the revolution. They were carrying like his portraits, and later in his memoirs. Uh, Gorbachev said in an interview several times that he realized that Honecker was absolutely out of touch. He would say, instead of addressing, they would sit at dinner and sing revolutionary songs. And uh, China, of course, uh, saw that, and Gorbachev went to China around the same time. And, and, and again, there were so many uh, protesters, uh, demonstrators uh, who carried like slogans in Russian. So. Chinese thought, oh, that's what's going to happen to us, what happened to Honecker and stuff, and all these people. So that was a fear, but the Russian intelligentsia, those uh, elites uh, which supported Gorbachev, they had a huge sympathy for China. They wanted China to uh, collapse as a communist political system. But, but I think there is a big difference in China, communism is more rooted internally, or whatever political system, I don't, even, I don't know what term to use, Marxism, Maoism, whatever that political system, has more internal roots than, for example, in Poland. In Poland, it was just brought with the Russian tanks. It's like, think about it in Cuba also, like people were saying communism will collapse in Cuba. It didn't, because of the political roots. But you're right that those events, uh, the Pooch of 1991, I remember it really well, I was 21 years old, uh, the fall of the wall, that had a direct message to China immediately. What sorts of lessons did the CCP leadership take away from the dissolution of the Soviet Union? It was very much a surprise to leaders and analysts all over the world. The dissolution happened overnight to a lot of observers. Yeah, and the Chinese looked at it as the role of the Communist Party in this case, the Communist Party of China looked at the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and said that its rapid liberalization and democratization ha happened too fast and the party got out of control and people who had no um, allegiance to the party got into the party and were able to um, move up the ranks to higher positions. Uh, secondly, ethnicity that the ethnic question was alive and well within the Soviet Union and that the, the withdrawal from the Soviet bloc of countries in Eastern Europe uh, and then the, the Baltic countries of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which were at the same time trying to separate, um, was also brought up by the Chinese. And then finally, religion was one of the major factors because they had witnessed the liberalization of religion following the Jubilee in 1988 in the Soviet Union, where religion became 
once more open and you could practice and proclaim your faith. And it was, I want Peter to comment on that. I'll just leave it there. Uh, but in China, they, they looked at these factors and said, taken together, they were like a perfect storm of what could lead to a regime collapse. And what we need to do in China is to not do those things now. We need to handle them properly, that these are contradictions within society, and we need to properly handle them. We need to hold on to the Communist Party power. We need to address the ethnicity question, and we need to watch religion and its, its force over the population. Oh, I um, agree with uh, Chris with those uh, four lines. He said uh, oh, ethnic, religion, uh, democratization, uh, going too fast. Uh, uh, the question of ethnicity is huge because like in uh, uh, China, uh, so the, the identities are different. Like with Uyghur people or like in the former Soviet Union or the people from the Northern Caucasus, dozens of nationalities there. Uh, and um, so, yeah, ironically today, of course, the Russian government says that the Chinese were right. They did it the right way. Gorbachev did it a completely wrong way. And they bring up exactly these factors. They said that China was smart. The Chinese saved their own country. Uh, and Gorbachev destroyed it by exactly by those factors. Too fast democratization, liberalization, religion and so forth, and that destroyed, and it's true, it actually makes sense. I do think that, I don't know if you agree with me, that China could have fallen apart like the Soviet Union. Absolutely. It, in my book, I argue that it was in a crisis phase, and it was, the, it was the fact that the Soviet Union was undergoing a rapid collapse that led the Chinese to stop all reforms, rethink them, and address the problems that they identified, these four factors, uh, as they identified them and said, we need to slow down, the economy's heating up, the, the liberalization has gotten out of hand, the protests need to be stopped, and to slow things down for a few years. And, and that's what happened until, until January, February of 92. But it's a problem of any imperial state. If you're an empire, can you imagine the Ottoman Empire liberalizing itself and letting Armenians talk or, or something, or elect their own leaders? So that's very true. Yeah. I mean, the question at what cost, what are the costs and or benefit analysis of an empire like that collapsing? Or the international security? You know, there are some... So the lessons the CCP drew from all these episodes was if you reform and liberalize too much or too fast, you lose control, and then it becomes a runaway train. Uh, the American political establishment during this period, as it was figuring out giving China back most favored nation status in the early 80s, and then I think by the early 90s, we were on track for WTO ascension, the narrative was very much if we get China economically developed, it would create a middle class. The middle class would ask for more things and rights, and then eventually that would cause maybe a dissolution of the Communist Party in China. So it seems like even 
as far as like 92 or 93 when Bush senior, and then definitely during the Clinton administration, we could tie speeches they made to that very idea of liberalizing or economic development in China would equal eventual liberalization. But it sounds like from your, the narrative you two are putting forth is by 92, the Chinese Communist Party was very aware that anything like that would definitely lead to their eventual collapse. So kind of, there seems to be a, a tension there, right? Where we had a plan in place to collapse the Communist Party that the Communist Party was well aware of. Well, I, I think we have to distinguish between liberalization and collapse. So we were naive at that time period, and we thought that the end of communist rule, let's say it that way, would be met with popular, popular joy and everybody would get along and they would everyone would be happy. And, and Peter, I'm going to have you ha comment for sure on this in the Soviet context. But in, in the Chinese context, Deng Xiaoping knew that liberalization too fast meant the collapse of a regime. And you're talking about the collapse of a regime of, at that time, 1.2 to 1.3 billion people. And the middle class thinking that is behind this, this theory of what the Chinese call and have called for, uh, wow, since the 1960s, I believe, if not the 50s, Huping Yanbian, peaceful evolution. The evolution has to do with a transition, a transformation of the system, not a collapse of the system. And this is the time of Francis Fukuyama and the end of history and the third wave by Samuel Huntington and the spread of democratization worldwide. And we, I think, were very naive as academics that democratization equaled peace, prosperity, um, people following their own paths to their future, and not the type of uh, calamities we saw with, say, the Azeris and, and Armenians um, and the, the ethnic conflict that broke out in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, uh, and the Balkans, uh, especially the Balkans. And China was not prepared to allow this to happen, so it backpedaled. Um, I don't think that President Clinton wanted to see a collapse of the Soviet Union, but I agree with you that he wanted, he wanted to implement or support the implementation of free market measures that would lead to capitalism and then lead to the expansion growth of the middle class that would lead to democratization calls. I agree with that, but I don't think Clinton thought, and we will collapse China um, the way we collapsed the Soviet Union. That would be a good thing. Um, I interviewed several people in the government at the time when I was writing the book on paralleled reforms, and that wasn't the thinking. The thinking was that they didn't understand the, the powers that could be unleashed by popular movements. 
Uh, and before long, Timothy Colton's going to write a book called From Voting to Violence. And this is 2001, I believe, 2000. He's from Harvard, a professor of Russian studies. And he pointed out for us, he said, wait, look, you know, when these countries democratize, they sometimes go into ethnic conflict and war. And that's not something we want to spread. I think that's the key. There was an incredible naivete in the 90s that if you become democratic, it's, it's all going to be great. The Germans, until very recently, even had the same approach uh, to Russia. They thought oh, more middle class, more trade, more oil and gas sold, more like this and that. Uh, somehow, like Russia will become more democratic, which is the opposite. So, and of course, uh, I, for example, I think I wrote myself in, in my recent book and in several publications that Russia may fall apart and end up like the Soviet Union. But I'm not convinced that it's going to be any better because if it's, it depends how it happens. Because if you think of a country with uh, thousands of nuclear weapons and all these uh, ethnic tensions and everything, I, I mean, how it's going to proceed. So, I mean, the same with China, I think. It's, it, it's, it's a very frightening question to think of these huge empires disintegrating one day. And it may, I think, with Russia particularly today, but it could be a frightening scenario. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hindsight Podcast. Included in the show notes are a transcript of this episode along with a list of terms for reference. Please note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, National Defense University, or the Army Foundry platform. If you have a suggestion or request for future episode topics or have questions for our guest, please send us an email at hindsight.podcast@army.mil. Until next time, I'm your host, Lou Tran, signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.